She's Tori. And he's Nick. And this is I Want to Rewatch. An X-Files adjacent podcast. In search of... A call from space. This episode was written and produced by Christine Zerbach-Weiser. It was edited by Michael Ornstein with assistance by John Schwartz and Jack Dunsmore. The series is hosted and narrated by Leonard Nimoy. And this episode originally aired on Saturday, May 28th, 1977. Tori's negative fifth birthday. Yay. I know five years from this day, I will be born. Yeah. She wasn't even a hint of a gleam. No. In anybody's eye. I was not. Not yet. Yeah. So we open with Leonard Nimoy's narration and he tells us, Our voices have ascended into space, announcing our presence to the universe. Other men on other worlds may be listening. Also the women, but we don't know. Possibly Uh, have gender. I mean, they're alien creatures. They they could have totally different genders or no gender. And that would be fine as well. I mean, as long as they're not talking, they can listen, I guess. It's fine. (laughs) We await an answer from afar. Placed by an intelligence we do not know, we will not recognize, we may not even understand. Radio waves that might bear the conversations of distant beings are monitored day and night by astronomers throughout the world. Our understanding of life in outer space may begin with reaching out to another form of intelligence here on Earth. If we can communicate with one strange intelligence, we can hope to communicate with others. I feel like every time I communicate, I'm communicating with a strange intelligence. And then we get opening credits. Dun, 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 dun. Yep. Then we get the break in the opening credits and Nimoy comes back and he says, the stars and galaxies beckon us to ask, are we alone? We listen for the answer. Dun, 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 dun. In search of a call from space. They don't say it. It's just words on the screen. But yes, you, know, yeah. you can't see that in a podcast. So I have to say it out loud. So yeah. theory and conjecture, blah, blah, blah. I want to insert a cut scene here of Carl Sagan. And he's just like, the sky is full of billions and billions of stars. Can the probability of intelligent life circling any star besides our own? truly be zero and then some other dudes be like aliens so that's what i want to put it right here so actually carl sagan is in this episode he is yeah like very, stock very footage sweet. i'm pretty sure but mm-hmm. he is in this episode. Yeah. yeah and then Leonard nimoy gets some more narration yeah he comes back and he says we have always dreamed of talking with celestial beings discoveries in deep space have revealed that the same chemistry that created earthly life operates elsewhere perhaps we are not accidents of creation perhaps we are not alone i apologize for that horrible 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 carl sagan impression i'm not (laughs) even sure that counts as a carl sagan impression but anyway so yeah yeah so then the episode begins and we learn that the search for life beyond planet earth has begun 
and we see like big like machine to move in and he says our galaxy alone contains over 250 billion stars and there are at least 100 billion other galaxies billions and billions anyway how many of these stars have earth-like atmospheres and life (gasps) i don't know maybe one at least i mean come on one out of like billions and billions and billions that's not bad odds really so yeah it's really that's really bad odds if you're betting but if you're trying to think if something lives there that's not too bad odds so in 1971 doctors bernard oliver and john billingham led a group of 24 scientists at the nasa ames research center which we last heard about in our mars episode and they concluded that radio was the most effective way of detecting other voices in space and so the SETI program began, the search for extraterrestrial intelligence. Yay! And Oliver tells us that the program began from the belief that to find intelligent life, we'll have to travel beyond our own solar system. And that's obviously a difficult thing to do. Because there's no intelligent life on this planet. That's why. <laughs> well, at least at least not on the moon or Mars <laughs> or like nearby anyway. I get what you were doing, but yeah. <laughs> But we can look for evidence of it in radio signals. And Billingham says that it's possible that extraterrestrial signals have been falling on Earth for millions or even billions of years. And we just haven't been able to detect them. It's like God was speaking, but we weren't listening. <laughs> oh, no. Oh, no. oh sorry. It just, it just, that just came to me when you, I, just, I don't know not, why. It's not God. It's other, it's extraterrestrial beings. Their minds. How do we know that other minds aren't what we think of as God? It's true. It's true. You don't know. Or that they are gods. I mean, Eric Von Daniken thinks they're gods that ride in chariots. True. So, true. Yeah. In 1931, extraterrestrial radio signals were accidentally discovered by Bell telephone engineer Carl Jansky. What? He detected this hiss that seemed to come from the center of the galaxy. And it turned out to come from these dense star clouds that at that point we weren't able to see with telescopes yet. So it's like snake aliens are hissing. Yeah, I think it's more that it's just like universe noise. It's not like intelligent oh, noise. It's I was just, wondering how come I had never heard of this. It's like yeah, it's just like but... background noise in the galaxy that he was able oh. to detect. Yeah. In 1961, the search for intentional signals began. And then we see the sign for the National Radio Astronomy Observatory, and we learn about Project Ozma, which was obviously named after Wizard of Oz and characters in that book. Oh. And at Green Bank, West Virginia, a radio telescope was used for the first time to listen for intelligent signals from space. Ooh. And Ozma was followed 10 years later by the Cyclops plan which Oliver tells us started with a dish 300 feet in diameter. And the plan was to add additional ones as time went on. So basically they were going to add additional dishes and create a system that's known as an antenna ray. So they would have a bunch of dishes and they would be able to like catch anything that came their way. Yeah. We get like cool art too, that shows them all like, they're all like, mm-hmm. all lined up. the Cyclops plan sounds like something from a Sean Connery, James Bond movie, honestly. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it does. Yeah the cyclops plan dun, dun, dun. anyway then we meet dr charles seeger of seti and he talks about the challenge of interference produced by all our transmissions on the same frequencies so because we're putting out signals and then we're also here on earth trying to like you know weed out the signals coming in 
And he talks about how having our antennas out in space where it's quiet and there's no wind and there's less interference would be awesome. So such as possibly the backside of the moon, because that side is always shielded from Earth's transmission because the moon is in tidal lock. And so the same side always faces out. Mm-hmm. And they envision putting Arecibo style antennas in the craters of the moon. Uh-huh. And when he said that, I kind of just pictured like the moon. It's like this giant speaker, like throwing out beats to space, like boom, 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 like thumping. I know that's the exact opposite of like getting signals in, putting signals out. But that's just kind of what I thought of mm-hmm. in my head. So, because yeah. as I mentioned, the moon is tidally locked. And so even though the moon rotates, its rotation is synced with its rotation around the earth. And so we always see the same side. The yep. same side is always facing out. So, so the dark side would be good. I don't know if you heard that story about this like Australian telescope uh, and they were having interference for like 17 years and they couldn't figure out what it was. And they knew it wasn't like an alien signal or anything. They knew it was something interfering with their telescope and they couldn't like they just kept trying to figure it out and they had people researching and eventually they figured out it was like the microwave that they had on site in like the crew break room that was like interfering (laughs) i thought you were gonna say it was the nazis on the far side of the moon like sending out signals no it was just because someone was like oh i need a microwave or burrito now and (laughs) that was what was causing the interference so yeah earth interference is a thing we have obviously a lot of signals and a lot of electronics and equipment and that can definitely interfere with telescopes and these kinds of things and we should say tori had mentioned the dark side of the moon that is a misnomer because obviously when there is a new moon the back side of the moon is totally lit by the sun. So there is no dark side of the moon, but it's the side yeah. that we never see is what we call I, the dark side of the moon. I didn't mention so. it. The show did. Did they? Well, you I mentioned think, it. And then I think the show, I think that's what the show called it, but yeah, I don't oh, know. <laughs> yeah. I do think the show actually mentions though, that it's not, that it is a misnomer as well. Too. Okay. So, Tori spreading fake news. <laughs> yeah. An alternative would be to have an antenna orbiting the earth out in space with the pieces flown to space constructed there because then you could build like big stuff that would weigh like a super lot but it wouldn't weigh anything it was out in space and in space mm-hmm. things don't really weigh anything so that's cool so nimoy tells us that while we wait for a signal from space we have not ruled out sending signals Ooh. and then he talks about the arecibo telescope in the jungle which we actually talked a lot about in the x-files episode season two episode one little green men where mm-hmm. Mulder goes to the Arecibo telescope because of a signal that was received. So you should listen to that episode. That was a really fun one. The Arecibo telescope is a thousand feet across and 300 feet deep. So it could listen to signals from the farthest reaches of the universe. Yeah. And much like they talked about on the moon, the Arecibo is actually in a crater. Yes. So, or was, it has since, is not working anymore. So mm-hmm. listen to Little Green Man, you'll find out why. Yeah, <laughs> so, or look on the internet. Yeah, you can also just Google it, but you, yeah. you should listen to that episode. That episode was really fun, anyway. So Mulder's like totally unhinged. It's great. And then on November sixteenth, nineteen seventy four, man prepared to beam his first and only intentional signal into space. Ooh. Our message, traveling at the speed of light, will take twenty four thousand years to reach star cluster M thirteen. In the constellation Hercules. Ooh. So that's a really long time. We're probably not going to live to figure out if they got it and hear a response. Probably not. And when I say we, I mostly mean you and me, but at this rate, also possibly humanity. 
hey man you don't speak for me okay don't speak for me <laughs> although honestly i have been thinking more and more about like man i'm kind of glad that maybe i am not immortal because <laughs> shit what do i have to look forward to honestly like you know it's like oh my god anyway yeah <laughs> i'm i'm an optimist what can i say i think march is optimism month so Sweet. We're recording this in March. We are recording it in March. I don't know when it's going to go out on Patreon, but not in March. So, so in code, the message describes our solar system and life on Earth. Who or what will answer our call? Mm -hmm. No, don't know. Kind of giving them all the information they need to conquer us, honestly. But on March second, nineteen seventy-two. Pioneer 10 began its 21-month journey to Jupiter. Attached to Pioneer 10 is a plaque, a kind of planetary Rosetta Stone designed by astronomer Carl Sagan. And then we see Carl Sagan, and he explains how the plaque shows our location in time and space, along with illustrations of two human beings. And Sagan says the plaque made them think about what sort of impression we may wish to give to the cosmos. Pioneer 10 flew past Jupiter in December of 1973. In 1984, it here we're getting weird tenses because this is obviously in the past and they're talking about the future. So they say in 1984, it will leave the solar system forever and who will pick up our message? And it's weird. They do this a lot. Like they started talking about 1974 and then they talk about 72 and then they talk about, they don't talk about stuff in chronological order a lot. They jump back and forth in time a lot instead of like, doing linear stuff kind of yeah messes with my head sometimes which nick is very like he likes things in chronological order well if you're telling a story about the progress of us contacting space totally maybe do it in order no i totally get it around yeah they do jump around they're like this is interesting let's put this here and then yeah yeah i get it because they're 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 linking together topics instead of doing a linear progression of things they're doing because we're talking about receiving signals we're talking about sending signals and we're talking about probes and so they're kind of clumping the items together as opposed to just giving us a timeline so i get it but it's messes with my head sometimes mm-hmm. so then dr oliver tells us that any signal we pick up so again now we're going back to from trans so if they're not even doing what i just said because now we're talking about picking up signals again so i have an issue with the editor okay <laughs> michael ornstein we need to talk anyway Oliver tells us that any signal we pick up will not have originated from a civilization less advanced than us, as it's only recently that we've been able to detect such signals. So obviously they will be more advanced than us. And honestly, by the time we get it, if they're still around, they're going to be like super advanced and just gods, basically. He didn't say that, but I'm saying that because it's true. (laughs) Anyway, it's very likely that we'll find a civilization much more advanced than ourselves. True. And then they'll kill us. So how it goes i mean if we're still around when they get the signal who knows at the ames research center psychologist dr mary connors is working to determine what an alien civilization might be like One of the things she's concerned with is what the nature of intelligence we might contact could be and what form it might take. To that, what can we learn from animal intelligence? (gasps) Animals. Then then we like cut to a dolphin, of course, because dolphins are very intelligent. And there's this guy tossing rings for the dolphin to catch. 
And Nimoy tells us that dolphins speak a language we don't understand, and its brain size is comparable to man. Yet the dolphin is still an enigma. At San Diego SeaWorld, trainers and researchers are attempting to unravel the mysteries of dolphin sonar and communication. Ooh. And like, when they cut to the guy throwing rings for the dolphin, he's got this like long, thin whistle in his mouth that I'm sure is like a training or communication whistle that he uses with the dolphin. But it looked like he was smoking a cigarette. And I just thought, oh, yeah, that's super 70s. He's just hanging out, smoking a cigarette, throwing rings to a dolphin. Like, OK, cool. <laughs> yeah, honestly. I saw your note about that before I watched the episode. And when it came on, I still thought it was a cigarette. So but you can see the little, the little cord coming from it from around his neck. But yeah, it totally looks like he's just like, it does. It looks like he's smoking a cigarette, hanging out with his dolphin buddy. I don't know. It's just funny. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Especially because like it's nighttime. They're like at nighttime. They're at the like the pool. And he's like, there's some other dude like by the side of the pool. And they're just like throwing rings of the dolphins. Like they're just, they're hanging out. They had a few beers, chilling with the dolphins, smoking <laughs> some cigarettes. Honestly, yeah. sounds like a good time to be honest, yeah. but <laughs> just hang out with your dolphin buddy. Cool. So Dr. Lanny Cornell and researcher Sherry Gish are interested in cracking the communication barrier. So what they do, they have this like system set up where they put two dolphins in separate pools. So it's like this big, um, it's not like a, a tank. They're like smaller pools that they have kind of in the back of SeaWorld or whatever. Not that the like SeaWorld two hot tubs big enough. Yeah. But um, they're, yeah, they're, they're pretty small. And then they have like this soundproof barrier that they put in between them. So the dolphins can't, communicate through the water to each other because there's this barrier which apparently they can like open and close so that way they know when they're getting signals or aren't getting signals i'm not exactly sure how it works they didn't go into too much detail but basically they study each sound in exchange and so they know when the dolphins can and cannot communicate and then they use an oscilloscope to monitor changes in frequencies some of which are inaudible to the human ear and at 116th the normal speed, the intricacies of dolphin signals becomes very apparent. So if you slow it down, you can see just how much is getting into each little like sound. I understand how that works, but I'm always curious when people talk about like, we have sounds that are inaudible to the human ear. And I'm like, how do you know? So I, <laughs> I understand how they know, but it just always gets me. So, and also, hello, Professor Ingstrom was talking to dolphins in 1970. We saw that on Scooby-Doo with the caveman episode. So he was talking to dolphins and his little, and actually he went into a little shed. Remember, he goes in a little shed on the dock and they go into a little shed when they're doing their dolphin stuff too. I was like, hey, yeah. sheds. Yeah. Also, I don't know if you've heard of Dr. John Lilly. He was big in dolphin. He was, he's in a lot of stuff. Got his fingers in a lot of pies. He was actually a member of the group of scientists who gathered at the Green Bank Observatory in 1961 to discover the possibility of using the techniques of radio astronomy to detect the evidence of intelligence life outside the solar system. And the group actually called themselves the order of the dolphin after Lily's work with dolphins. Oh, interesting. So, also he did some freaky stuff with like LSD. And at one point we're not really sure a woman might've had sex with a dolphin Oh, in one of his studies. Maybe That's we're not weird. sure, or at least like pleasured the dolphin. No one will really confirm this. Yeah. But anyway, ooh. it sounds kind of like when you read it, it sounds like, yeah, someone, something was going on. Anyway, they totally missed the opportunity to go with whales instead of dolphins. And then we could have had that future Star Trek Four connection. But I mean, it's eh. the future, so they didn't know. But yeah, yeah. Star Trek Four is perfect. I mean, I know, but Nimoy's in this and we're doing intelligent life on Earth and whales. So, <laughs> yeah, anyway, I don't know. 
again, making those connections. I do feel like we need to make a so long and thanks for all the fish joke, but I'm not sure how to get it in there. So uh, dolphins aren't fish, Tori. No, the end of Hitchhiker's Guide when they leave and they leave the message for the humans that's so long and thanks for all the fish. Oh, I've heard that before. I didn't know what it was from. You've never read Hitchhiker's Guide? Oh, my God. Okay. I don't even know. (laughs) I don't even know you. I don't don't even know what to do with that. Okay, let's just move on. (laughs) Hey, but I've listened to Morning Musme, so. Yeah, they are very cool. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, (laughs) Bellingham. Tells us that there are clear evolutionary advantages to say having two eyes and an upright posture and a brain located at the end of one body. I guess that's because dolphins have two eyes. I'm, this part was weird. I think it's just it's saying about that alien evolution and we would yeah, know aliens if we saw them. He's just and, saying that it's likely we might encounter aliens that have a similar physiological makeup to us because it's evolutionarily advantageous, but like only on our planet. So who knows what their planets just are like? You know, like I don't know. Yeah. I mean, it does allow Nimoy to posit the question, will contacting a civilization with similar characteristics bring doomsday to our world or do the benefits to our future outweigh the danger? And I'm just like, are they if they're bringing an alien contagion, we're fucked because we're not going to do anything. We're going to be like freedom, personal freedom, and we're all going to die. So, yeah, yeah, they can even bring a vaccine and still wouldn't really help because. We know how that goes on this planet. Anyway. I mean, in all honesty, an alien vaccine probably would have a tracking device in it or something. Probably. Some kind of like mind control. But Maybe. I mean, it would depend advanced. on the aliens, you know? So, yeah. Then we meet Dr. John Krauss, who is working intently to answer the question, are we alone in the universe? <gasps> and Krauss says it's a pioneering venture to find out what and perhaps who is out there. But searching for extraterrestrial intelligence is like searching for a needle in a haystack. You need a roadmap. Some mixed metaphors there, but okay. (laughs) Anyway, his roadmap is a giant telescope he helped design and build that he affectionately calls Big Ear and is basically known as Big Ear. We actually mention it in Little Green Men. It comes up. So again, listen to that episode. Its area is larger than three football fields, and they began their search for signals on Friday, December 7th. 1973 and we'll talk a little bit more about big ear at the end of the episode Krauss says the probability of life elsewhere in the universe is hard to determine but he doesn't think it's zero much like my impression of carl sagan and he says that if it's not zero then someday the call from space may come (gasps) oh and then nimoy comes back to give us his closing narration for centuries Man thought the earth was the center of the universe. The sun, moon, and stars would alight our days and nights. Then Galileo turned his telescope to the sky. We learned that the moon and planets were worlds beyond dispute. That stars were not just ornaments in the sky, but represented a cosmos far beyond man's earthly imagination. We dreamt of life beyond planet earth, and set out to explore the universe. We began humbly with the moon. And then we get like this footage of some astronauts on the moon. I'm not sure which astronauts they are, but they're like singing a song. Something in the month of, and it's supposed to be the month of May. And one of them is like, it's not May, it's July. So I think it's actually might be the first landing. This might be Buzz Aldrin and Neil Armstrong. Because one of them 
is like, it's not May, it's July. So he says July, but the other one is like May and they stumble over each other and like May because he's trying to sing the song. The other one is like trying to make it like match. And so they, he's probably like me. I don't know which one is which, but the dude who says July is probably like, that's the Nick astronaut. <laughs> so, because he's like, no, it's not May, it's July. We should say July. <laughs> the other one's like, song. I'm trying to do a thing here. <laughs> yeah. Anyway. Yeah. <laughs> and then Nimoy continues and he says, we found there is no man in the moon. But there are nine other planets in our solar system. So we set our sights on Mars and sent our probe. Now we look beyond the vastness of the universe and search the stars for the voices of other beings. He says there's nine other planets. Even if you're counting Pluto, that's only eight because you can't count Earth. Like, Yeah, I don't, I don't know where he got nine. Maybe he meant... Counting planet X? Maybe the narrator... The narration writer meant to say, like, there are nine planets and it just got warped or something. But yeah, yeah. I was like, what? anyway. And then we go back to Billingham, which I thought was funny. So we could kind of cut the narration and we go back to him. And he says that if we were actually to decipher messages from other civilizations, then we might learn about the pathways they took when they were at our state of development. So kind of like they're going to be more advanced than us when they were where we are. What did they do? All of us is such a network of communication of societies could achieve results that would be harder to achieve alone. So like if we all work together, we can do great things. Mm. And then Nimoy comes back because he can't let someone else have the last word. That's not how the show works. And he says, past human history may be only the prelude to our future as members of a galactic society. Our future will begin with a call from space. <gasps> and then before we get the credits we get that little like kind of weird advert thing where he talks about like lost civilizations extraterrestrials myths and monsters that kind of little bit that he does like he did in episode two and it's only happened one other time i don't remember which episode it was but it kind of periodically pops up so it's like a sub credit mm-hmm. like elevator pitch for the show kind of almost and then we get the closing credits mm-hmm. so the episode is over yep yep So much like in the Mars episode, I had assumed that we would totally be talking about the face on Mars, only to learn that its announcement to the world occurred like six months later after the episode was produced. Unfortunately, in that episode's case, the information was out in the world before the episode aired. So it's almost like they kind of like didn't talk about it at all for some weird reason. Um, Similarly, when Tor and I were talking about this episode, I assumed that we would totally be talking about the wow signal which we also, again, discussed in our episode Little Green Men, season two, episode one. So that is definitely an episode you need to check out if you haven't already or if you just need a refresher because <laughs> the wow signal actually occurred less than three months after this episode aired. Oh, so this episode aired on May 28th, negative five Tory birthday. And the wow signal was detected on August 15th. So they didn't oh, know about man. it at all. But then also when it aired, no one knew about it so it actually didn't seem like they forgot about it because no one knew about it at all right so and that was at the big yeah yeah and that was at the big ear telescope which is why it all gets wrapped up in the episode in little green man when we talked about it so um, at least this one doesn't seem like an oversight so in search of was like way ahead of his time in more ways than one they were like oh so yeah so the ohio state university radio observatory which includes the big ear telescope ceased operation in 1997 
what is weird is that apparently Ohio State University had sold the land around and under the observatory, like in the 80s. I guess they needed money. So like they like sold all the property rights, like to everything but like the building, basically, and the telescope. And then when the telescope ceased operation in 1987, they took it down. And then like in 1988, they expanded a nearby golf course from nine to oh, just tore everything down. Yeah. I mean, gross. Caddyshack is the only good thing to ever come from golf, honestly. <laughs> so everything else is just like degrees of evil, in my opinion. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I won't even get into it, but it's really environmentally not a good thing, at least. And there are other problems, too. But yeah, gross. Yeah. So Pioneer 10 was the first of what is currently five man-made objects to have left our solar system. So Pioneer 10, as we mentioned, the episode was launched in 1972. It flew past Jupiter in 1973 and is heading in the direction of Aldebaran, which is 65 light years away in the constellation of Taurus at a speed of 11.9 kilometers per second, which is approximately 26,620 miles per hour. Wow. Contact was lost with Pioneer 10 in January of 2003, but it is estimated to have passed 120 astronomical units. And an astronomical unit is roughly the average distance between the Earth and the sun, which is about 150 million kilometers or 93 million miles. For context, Pluto's average distance, when it was considered a planet, was about 40 AU. So like three times the distance to Pluto's where apparently Pioneer 10 is now. Okay. 20 AU. Pioneer 11 launched in 1973. It flew past Jupiter in 1974 and Saturn in 1979. Contact was lost with it in November of 1995. So we actually lost contact with Pioneer 11 way before we lost contact with Pioneer 10. It is estimated to be at around 100 AU. The spacecraft is headed toward the constellation of Achila northwest of the constellation Sagittarius at a speed of 11.1 kilometers per second, which is about 24,830 miles per hour, so a little bit slower. Barring an incident, Pioneer 11 will pass near one of the stars in the constellation in about 4 million years. Oh, yeah. So So quite a while. Super sweet. Super (laughs) sweet. Yeah. Voyager 2 launched in August of 1977, flew past Jupiter in 1979, Saturn in 1981, Uranus in 1986, Neptune in 1989. The probe left the heliosphere for interstellar space at 119 AU on November 5th, 2018. Wow. Voyager 2 is still active. We're still getting signals from it. It is not headed toward any particular star, though. Although in about 40,000 years, it should pass 1.7 light years from the star Ross 248. So if you're Hmm. a fan of Ross 248, (laughs) shout out Voyager 2. If undisturbed for 296,000 years, it should pass by the star Sirius at a distance of 4.3 light years. Still, it's pretty far away. It's traveling at 15.3 kilometers per second, which is about 34,225 miles per hour. So it's moving pretty fast, much faster than Pioneer 10 or 11. Voyager 1 was launched in September of 1977. So strangely, Voyager 1 was launched after Voyager 2. Huh. 
huh. Voyager 2 August, Voyager 1 I feel 1, like September. we talked about why. I feel like there was some reason why. And maybe it wasn't you and I talking about it. Maybe I heard it somewhere else. But I think there was like a yeah, reason. Yeah, I don't remember. I can't remember. What I know we talked was. a lot about Viking. But I don't know oh, if we okay, talked so about maybe, Voyager. Maybe I heard it somewhere else. But I swear there was like a specific reason. Anyway, it's yeah. fine. Anyway, it flew past Jupiter in 79, Saturn in 1980. It made a super close approach to Saturn's moon Titan. It passed the heliopause at 121 AU on August 25th of 2012 to enter interstellar space. Voyager 1 is also still active. It's heading towards an encounter with the star Gliese 445, which lies 17.6 light years from Earth, and it'll reach that in about 40,000 years. It is traveling at 16.9 kilometers per second, which is 37,800 miles per hour. So Voyager 2 is just hauling ass. It's kicking butt. Wow. And then New Horizons was launched in 2006. Its probe flew past Jupiter in 2007 and Pluto on the 14th of July, 2015. It flew past Hyperbelt object 4869588 Arakoth on January 1st of 2019. So again, I guess if you're a fan of that one, yay, go <laughs> New Horizons. Man, these names are something else. I know. Uh, yeah. It's going at a speed of 13.8 kilometers per second, which is about 30,870 miles per hour. So as you might have noticed, Voyager 1 has achieved a higher speed and has overtaken the three that were launched before it. Voyager 1 overtook Voyager 2 like a few months after it was launched. Like, boom, just blew past it in December of 77. It overtook Pioneer 11 in 1983, and it overtook Pioneer 10 in 1988 and is now the probe furthest from the Earth because it is moving the fastest. There is something called the Pioneer Anomaly. So apparently Pioneer 10 and 11 are moving much slower than they thought they should move. And they're not sure exactly why, but they're, they're pretty sure that has something to do with like the loss of heat okay. out there and the way like the way it was built and just like that, it, somehow slowing it down. They don't know. It obviously has not affected the Voyager 1 and 2 probes. They don't know if it'll affect the New Horizons probe. So if it's not affected by the Pioneer anomaly, it will overtake Pioneer 11 in the 22nd century. And then we'll overtake Pioneer 10 at the end of the 22nd century. It'll never overtake the Voyagers, though, because it's not moving fast enough. So Gotcha. Cool. Yeah, it's like the third fastest. Well, now I want to live for like another 500 years to see if anything comes of this nonsense. Although it seems like most of it is happening in like 40,000 years or something. Yeah, so, I don't know yeah. that 500 years would really do much. And the weird thing is, is like, obviously, like I talked about, like how Voyager, I'm assuming New Horizons is also, we're still getting information from that as well. But like Voyager 1 and 2, like they're still active. I don't know that we're actually getting information from Voyager 1 and 2 anymore because obviously the further they get away, the longer it takes for the information to reach us. Right. So it's one of those weird kind of, you know, yeah. Yeah. If we're so getting anything, that, who knows? Yeah. Yeah. And then how old is it? Right. Right. And that's the thing yeah. with getting messages from space. When you get them, you're getting them like, you know, in thousands and thousands and thousands, if not millions of years after they were originally sent. So the same will likely be true for any messages that people, I say people that any other extraterrestrial intelligences get from us so and apparently we've only really sent the one but they'll probably get like i love lucy messages and yeah they'll get tv shows all that yeah stuff. actually they probably won't because it'll break down over time because they're not strong enough but yeah yeah 
It would be nice if they did, though. That'd be sweet. Like I mean, watch our TV. in Beast Wars, it turns out that Megatron found the golden disc that was on one of the probes and then used it to go back in time to actually not Megatron didn't, but another Decepticon, actually a Predacon named Megatron went back in time. And then they had the Beast Wars and they were on Earth and it turned out there were two moons. And one of the moons was hollow. It was actually like a space station built by the Volk. And it was a good show. <laughs> but anyway. So, yeah. And then there's the episode of Futurama where the aliens are watching Alec McNeil. It's like an Ally McBeal knockoff. But then, oh. like, the signal gets cut out. And so, like, they have to travel from, like, you know, it was a show in Fry's time. And now it's been, like, 2,000 years. But they just got it. And they, they couldn't get the finale. So they come to Earth and threaten to, like, blow up the Earth if they don't find out what happens on the show. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> man imagine if they were doing that i don't know did alan mcbill actually have like an end or was it one of those shows where they like didn't have like a? I think it did but this end. is a this is a okay. parody of it called ally mcneil so they have to like right. act out an episode of ally mcneil because there's no real ending because the signal got cut out in the year 2000 and so like no one ever got to see it so they have to like make one up like live for the aliens oh yeah. it's like what if aliens were like like really waiting for episode 21 of Colchick the night stalker and like yeah they got upset and turned on the one, yeah one, well then in 2000 years they'll show up and be like hey hey what, and they never didn't support Kolchak? the show you know <laughs> put it in a crappy time slot just did not support just cut it off randomly with no warning super great Mm -hmm. here's some scripts we have some old scripts you could read (laughs) sorry you could do some community theater maybe with some cold check scripts i would actually probably go watch that Um, (laughs) that'd be pretty great actually (laughs) i would i would audition for a community production of cold check the night stalker like some unknown case like and if it was a musical I mean, I can't oh, sing, God. but I would be so in. I would be yeah, so in. Cool. Yeah. Again, if you're going to redo Colchek, the way to do it is the cartoon. I'm, yeah, I'm totally. I'm just saying that, a Colchek but, musical yeah. would be very cool. You have a really good I want song. And then Vincenzo would have a really good song about how, like, you know, Colchek's always missing his deadlines yeah, and his stress. An and, ulcer. <laughs> yeah, it'd be so great. And then, like, I don't know who the villain. I guess it would depend on what the monster was. But, yeah. Yeah, the villain would probably be the police chief. Honestly, mm, we would have to get Mad Dog Siska. Yeah, Mad Dog Siska yeah. would have to come back. Yeah, um, It'd be pretty good yeah. though. Yeah, if we, yeah, if there was a cartoon, we have we'd have Mad Dog Siska there a lot. We would definitely have Gordy the Ghoul, right? Oh yeah, yeah. We would probably have oh, uh, what was the cabbie's name from the Youth Killer? I forget. He was he was a good guy. The dude who was putting Manning's on cold check. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, trying to get the ring of, off. Of course, Miss Emily and Ron. Right? Oh, yeah, obviously. obviously. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Maybe we would bring back, like, like Louise from A Night Strangler at some point, maybe. If, you know, just yeah, like a, can do that. Like she would just show up or something. Um, yeah, we could touch. we could touch on all kinds of stuff. So, yeah. Anyway, good dream. <sighs> If it was a musical, there could be like an ensemble number with the newspaper staff talking about how like yeah. they all do their work and meet their deadlines, but Kolchak never does. Oh, oh so it would be like Newsies, but with yeah, I've actually paranormal. never seen Newsies. It's one of the musicals I've never oh, seen. Okay. I don't even know the songs from it. With the young Christian Bale. Yeah. yeah. Anyway. Well, <laughs> thanks for listening. <laughs> Somehow yeah. we got off topic. If, That's if, a shock. if we ever decide to make any of that stuff, we'll probably put it on Patreon and then you guys yeah. will get it. So good for you <laughs> for supporting us because then you'll have. Mm, there you go. Cole, check the musical.
yeah, we'll call uh I don't know, the guys who wrote Les Mis, are they still around? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> They're good on ensemble numbers. Well, should Every we get your Macintosh? maybe we should get your well, I don't know. I don't well, I don't know if that would work. I would say your Star Kids people, maybe <gasps> help or something like that. Oh my god, yes, the Star Kid people, they would do a really great Kolchak musical. I don't know I if mean, they know what they, the hell Kolchak is, but could, well, could they do it without it being a parody? Don't they usually do parodies? They do usually do parodies, but that doesn't mean they're okay. not. I mean, holy musical Batman is pretty true to Batman, to be honest. Okay. <laughs> oh, is that them too? You've mentioned yeah, whole musical Batman, Batman is Kids. them. Okay. Starship is okay. an original. Should have known that is should've like known. if the Little Mermaid happened in space with bug monsters, sort of. Because there's like a okay. bug who wants to be a Starship Ranger, and they did Twisted, which is the Jafar one. They've done some original stuff too, like um, Black Friday and oh, what's the other one with the alien? Um, the guy who didn't like musicals oh, is, is what yeah. it's called. The guy who didn't like musicals. Very good. Okay. Yeah. All right. Fire Yeah. So, so stay tuned to Patreon. If any of that ever happens, you'll be the first to know. <laughs> yeah, I'll contact so. them, and they will never contact me back. No, I'm just kidding. They, yeah. I'm not going to bug them about that. They've got their own things going on. <laughs> Tori is so polite. I'm not going to. They got stuff going on. I'm not going to bother them. They've got lives. They're busy. <laughs> they've got other projects. Who knows? Who knows what they're working on? Well, maybe they need more. Maybe they're just <laughs> waiting for someone to come up with a hot idea, and we're the ones with that hot idea. You never know. Anyway, Joey Richter would do a good cold check, though. Yeah. I don't know who that is. So I will have to suspend my judgment on that until I have further information, which I probably will never have. So it's okay. There we go. Anyway, bye. Bye. (laughs) I Want to Rewatch is hosted by Tori and Nick and recorded in collaboration with Black Cat and Orange Tuxedo Studios. Episode production design and editing is by Lazian Productions. Our music is Dark Science by David Hillowitz. And the truth is what we make of it by the agrarians. Our premium feed is where you can find all of our X-Files adjacent bonus episodes covering television and films that are, you guessed it, X-Files adjacent. If you like these bonus episodes, tell a friend about our Patreon page. We'd love to have them join us. Speaking of which, be sure to join us next Wednesday as we go in search of learning ESP. Yes, I'm going to learn to be a psychic. Well, if so, then you can try and figure out If the the truth truth is is still out there. The truth is what we make of it.
in search of a call from space. Ooh. Hello, space call. <laughs> Click. Hey, this is <laughs> Hi Space. Uh you have a really bad connection. Could you maybe call back? Space, are you are you there? Hello? Huh. Okay, never mind. <laughs>